please give your attention to God's Word, Matthew chapter 5, and TJ is going to read for us verses 13 through 16. Would you stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word? You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you take this word now and change our hearts by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take a seat. In 1987, there was a book that came out that revolutionized childhood. Some of you know what it is. Uh, Martin Hanford took two years to produce this book. He painstakingly endured every page over time after dinner with his family, late into the night. He um, wanted to do a children's book, and he wanted to draw in a little figure named Waldo. So he wrote a book in 1987 called Where's Waldo? How many of you have ever seen this book? Yes, yes. Now, you have my permission to use this handout, and if you're down, I will presume that you are not looking at your Bible this morning. You're actually trying to find Waldo. That is okay with me. That's okay with me. Here's the point. Here's the point. Waldo shows up in very interesting places, even in society today, doesn't he? Like, you can see this picture here, and you can try to find Waldo. Good luck. Go for it. You've got about 25 minutes. But he also shows up at Oregon football games on occasion. Did you know that? Sometimes he just pops up in the middle of crowds. He just shows up. Where's Waldo? When I moved to Oklahoma, you want to know what the hardest transition for me was? Though I grew up in Texas, I was always around people who um, went to church who professed the name of Jesus outwardly. Then we moved to New Jersey where there were very few Christians. We were definitely the minority, and you felt it. And then we come back to Oklahoma to plant this church. And to be quite honest, I was overwhelmed with a number of people who claimed to be Christians. The problem is when you read this text in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount... And you get to verse 13, where it says, you are to be salt of the earth. Jesus says to his disciples, you are to be a light to the world. Let me ask you a question. How do you be salt and light in a distinctively Christian way in a very Christian world? Now, we're not trying to be different for different sake. But I just want to push on our assumption that Owasso, Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Bartlesville, Oklahoma, is as Christian as we think it is. Do you know that they've done statistics, they've done studies, and of course, 66% of all statistics are made up on the spot. I don't believe this one's one of those. But they say that 85% of people in the Tulsa metro area do not attend church. Now, that doesn't necessarily say anything about the state of their heart, although it does suggest that they don't understand the nature of the gospel because the gospel brings us into community. But if 85% of our town 
You can run the math. I can introduce you to all the pastors. We've actually thought about it in our Wednesday prayer meeting. We've added up all the people in our church to see how many people possibly actually go to church in Owasso on a regular uh, weekend. 85% sounds about right. But in a culture where it is predominantly professing Christians, being salt and light is almost like trying to find Waldo, isn't it? Where's the Christian? That's the question for you and for me. Jesus says to be salt and light. What does that look like in an area that is predominantly Christian? Do you see the question that we're posing together? Okay. Let's look at the text together. Jesus calls us to be salt and light, not honey and glitter. He calls us to be salt and light. He uses these two parallel metaphors to help the disciples and all who were listening to him at the Sermon on the Mount hear what Christians were to be with respect to the world around them. They were, first, to be salt, verse 13. And like salt, Christians are preservatives against the decay of the world. Salt was a preservative in the first century. Jesus explains this in verse, the second half of verse 13. If salt loses its saltiness, then it is no longer useful. The word for salt for loses its saltiness in Greek is just one word. It's the word moronthe. Can you say that word? Moronthe. It's almost an onomatopoeia. It's the, it's, it, it, it says what it means. It means, it sounds like the English word moron. That's exactly what it means, actually. It means stupid. It means salt is no longer useful when it becomes stupid, when it becomes mad, when it becomes stupefied. In the metaphor, if salt loses its saltiness, it's no longer useful except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. But can salt lose its saltiness? A teacher once asked a rabbi, Rabbi, how does salt lose its saltiness? Now, he wasn't referring to the New Testament because Jews don't believe in the New Testament. He was referring to common everyday life that the Talmud taught everything was to be lived under Yahweh. And he says, Rabbi, how does salt lose its saltiness? And the rabbi replied, listen, if it becomes unsavory, it can only become salted again with the afterbirth of a mule. Mules don't have afterbirth because they're sterile. And the rabbi's point was that salt can't lose its saltiness. So what does Jesus mean? How can salt lose its saltiness? Jesus knows that salt can't lose its saltiness. It's impossible for salt to lose its saltiness. The only way that salt becomes unuseful is that just south of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus is preaching, is a place called the Dead Sea, where they harvested salt. And they would bring in these huge, huge batches of salt. And if they found salt that was so mixed in with other minerals that they couldn't separate it out, then they threw it out onto the beaches. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make. If you become so mixed in and among the world that you begin to look out and it's like, where is Waldo? Where is the Christian? I can't find him anywhere. He looks just like everybody else. Jesus says, oh, Christian, 
If you are a Christian, perhaps you've lost your saltiness. In 1871, Mrs. O'Leary's cow knocked over a lantern on the south side of Chicago. The lantern caught her barn on fire, and it was a windy city. The flames from the barn, the embers blew to the neighbor's roofs, and the neighbor's roofs then caught fire, and they then precipitated in kind to the neighbors on the other side of them. The whole south side of Chicago caught on fire. And it came to the great Chicago River, which splits the city of Chicago. And all of the firefighters thought, if we can just stop the fire, we can get it to the borders of the great broad Chicago River, then we'll have this fire put out. And so they made all their effort to drive this fire toward the banks of the Chicago River except they forgot why they called the Chicago River the Stinking River. Because in this river, for years, they had so polluted it with sewage and with trash that when the fire crews got this fire to the edge of the Chicago River, they realized their mistake. And the flames of that fire from Mrs. O'Leary's cow that kicked over the lantern danced across the broad Chicago River because it had so much sewage in it, it had become flammable. And the whole city of Chicago burned, and half of the population was homeless. And after the fire... Tens of thousands of people got cholera and typhoid fever because for years they had dumped all their sewage into the Chicago River as a part of their sewage system, and it drained into the Great Lakes. And in 1900, they decided to do something that was an engineering masterpiece. Greater than the Panama Canal, they dug a 28-mile canal from the Great Chicago River to the De Plains River in Illinois. 28 miles they dug this canal. And when they lifted the last lock to let the water from the Chicago River now drip into the De Plains River, the entire direction of the flow of the Chicago River completely reversed. And all of a sudden, instead of trash going out into the Great Lakes, into Lake Michigan, when the whole river switched directions, it paused for a day and it began to pull fresh water from the Great Lakes through the city of Chicago down into the De Plains River. They were amazed at the force that they had now created to bring fresh water all the way through the city and to run the sewage south into the main avenues of the De Plains River. Listen, sometimes... When you become a believer and when I become a believer, sometimes large swaths of the struggles you have over sin become eliminated. Like sometimes those of you who used to, you know, have different kind of language, when you become a Christian, your language, maybe your language changes. Maybe when you become a Christian, you were once very promiscuous, you decided to be chaste. Maybe when you became a Christian, you were so convicted about the way that you used your money and you decided to be more generous. Maybe it was the way you used your body. Maybe it was the way you drank alcohol. I don't know what it is. But some, much of your life perhaps has become changed. And God led you to repentance in those areas. And it was beautiful. And for the first time in your life, what was once sewage and trash, it completely switched directions. And now the fresh water flows in that area of your life. That is beautiful. 
You're salt of the earth. If that can happen to you, that can happen to anyone. But let's keep going. Look at verse 16. The second metaphor Jesus uses is light. What does light do? It dispels the darkness. Like light, Christians expose the darkness of the world. In the ancient Near East, we didn't have light bulbs in our house like we do today. You lit a fire inside a terracotta lamp, and you set it on a stand, and it gave light to the whole house. And Jesus is saying, just like none of you would light that terracotta lamp and stick it under a bowl, so also your life should be like a lamp on a stand that gives light to the whole house of those who are watching. You are not to be honey and glitter. You are to be salt and light. But, but here's a question that I wrestle with as I studied this text. How are we to be salt and light in Tulsa, Oklahoma? Like if you're in a region of the world where people are just mean, then maybe, it's, maybe you can just be nice. That doesn't work here. Because everybody is nice. So how do you be salt and light in a distinctively Christian way? I'm going to offer four things. Number one, Christians who are salt and light love mercy and grace. Christians who are salt and light in a place like Owasso, they love mercy and they love grace. What do I mean? Micah says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Mercy is getting what you do not, is not getting what you do deserve. And Christians are those who believe that they have been given a great mercy. In the Old Testament, there's a story when um, Cyrus and Darius release those who are held captive in Babylon to come back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the wall. And Ezra, the scribe, writes about it. But when all the people come back to Jerusalem, they begin, remember Jerusalem was a city that laid fallow for many, many years, and lots of people who didn't believe in the one true God set up camp in this city. And the Israelites begin to intermarry with people from other nations. And Ezra cries out in a prayer to intercede for his people in Ezra chapter 9. And he says, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt for our intermarriage to other religions, we see that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. And you have given us such a remnant of people like this. Listen, Christians are people who love mercy. And not only do they love mercy, they love grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Religious people do not love grace. Humanists do not love grace. Christians love 
grace. Do you remember the story in Matthew chapter 20? It was the laborers in the vineyard. And the story goes that a man had a vineyard, and the master went out and he made an agreement, and he said, if you work for me, I will give you a denarius at the end of the day's work. And so he gathered a group of men, and they started to work. These laborers began to work early in the morning, and throughout the day, the master would go back, and he would gather more men because there was more work to do in the vineyard. And he said, listen, if you work for me for a day, for one day, I will give you a denarius. And so they worked. And so then the 11th hour came. It's 12-hour work day. The last hour of the day, he goes to these guys, what are you, what are you, why are you not working? Well, nobody asked us to work for them. Well, come work for me. You work for me for a day, I'll give you a denarius. And so at the end of the day, they all line up to get their payment. And the ones who had been working all day long, they knew that they were going to get paid more than the guy who just showed up at the 11th hour. And the master hands those who came first a denarius. And then those who came last, he gave them a denarius. And they threw a fit. How could you pay the guy that just worked one hour a denarius? And I've slaved for you all day. And what does the master say? What does Jesus say that the master says in the story in Matthew 20? He says, have I wronged you in any way? Did we not have an agreement that I would give you a denarius at the end of the day? And did I, did I break that promise to you in some way? Some of us who have walked in the light of the Lord, we have believed the gospel for many, many years, have children who don't. And you are angry about it. You have walked with Jesus for a long time, 12 hours. And people who just became Christians last month have got kids that are walking beautifully and they are the ones that are walking in righteousness and holiness. They believe in Jesus. They treasure him. It can't, you know, it's natural to feel angry about that, friends. But a Christian is one who loves grace and who is able even in that situation to realize how much grace has been poured out upon them in their life, even in the midst of their wayward children. And they are able to encourage and thank God for the people who came at the 11th hour. There are people all over Owasso, for example, who lived here for a long time, been Christians perhaps for a long time, and they see how many rooftops are going on in this town. And they're mad that their city is changing so much. This is my city. I moved out here to get away from all of you people. Listen, Christians love grace. Maybe you should move further away. Or maybe you should learn to embrace those who are coming around you because you know that the Lord has given you so much. He's giving them some things too. Are you a Christian who loves grace? Because if you do not love grace, friends, might it be that you are not a Christian? When you love grace, it changes your life. You grow less self-defensive. 
you grow less self-justifying, and you're able to see the commands of God as a sovereign and sweet mercy to you. And you walk with a moral example, motivated not by trying to please God into loving you, but because he loves you, you're able to be salt and light for the world. Are you? Do you love grace? Or do you just think it's a pretty cool concept? Second, Christians recognize their continual need for repentance. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. Christians are people who are honest about their brokenness. This is probably the one thing I think that helps us the most in a place like Owasso. We are to lead both by our moral example, yes. But equally, maybe even more so, we are to lead by our moral honesty. Nobody is impressed with the church when they look at us and they see us pasting smiles on our face and going to church and living with the values of the world Monday through Friday. Nobody is impressed. You know what they're impressed by? They are impressed by someone who is able to say, I need help. Because I'm a Christian, it allows me more emphatically to ask for help because I don't have it all together. In fact, when I became a Christian, the Holy Spirit revealed how much I don't have it together and how much I struggle with sin continually. Christians are those people who know that they have a continual need for repentance. Repentance isn't just the way you get into the kingdom of God. It's the way that you exist in the kingdom of God. Constantly coming back to your Savior who loves you and saying, Jesus, I need you. Notice that when the Apostle Paul lived his life, do you remember what Jesus said to the Apostle Paul? He was going to kill people on his way to Damascus. He was going to kill Christians like you and me. And the Holy Spirit knocked Paul off of his horse, and Jesus appeared to him in a blazing light. Interesting metaphor. And Jesus said, listen, Paul, you're going to go into the city, and when you get there, I will tell you what to do. Paul goes into the city, and in Acts chapter 13, verse 47, what does Jesus tell Paul what his task was? He quotes Isaiah, and he says, Paul, you are to be a light to the Gentiles. How was Paul a light to the Gentiles? He wasn't just a light to the Gentiles by his moral example, although he was an example. He ran to share the gospel with them. His whole way of thinking about the world completely and utterly changed. But notice all throughout the New Testament, when Paul writes about himself, how does he describe himself? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says that I am not even fit to be a saint. Then Paul says in 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, uh, 1 Corinthians, later he says in chapter 15, that I am the least of the apostles. Listen, Paul is growing in his spiritual life, but yet his awareness of himself is also growing. I don't deserve to be a Christian. I'm the least of the apostles. And then by the time he gets to the end of his life in 1 Timothy, how does Paul describe himself? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.15 that of all the sinners that ever were, I am the chief. 
Christians recognize their continual need for repentance. And that allows you to be able to relate to those who aren't Christians in their struggle against sin. And that is so important. Because if you think that because I'm a Christian, I'm not going to struggle the same way as unbelievers, you're deceiving yourself. You do not understand what Scripture tells us is true about our hearts. Romans chapter 7, Paul says, the things that I desire to do, I do not do, but those things that I want to avoid, I always end up doing. Oh, wretched man, who will rescue me from this body of death? And then he says in Romans chapter 8, that if you live by the flesh, you will die. And if you live by the Spirit, you will live. If we didn't have an ongoing struggle with sin in our life, friend, Romans chapter 8 would not make any sense. Christians are people who know, who love mercy and grace. Do you? And Christians are people who recognize their continual need for repentance. That is how Christians can be preservatives to the world, because they are refreshingly honest about themselves. Are you? Listen, if, if this whole thing that we're doing here wasn't about the work that Jesus has done for us and it was about your moral self-effort, I would be giving all of you tickets to go to some self-help session because you'd be wasting your time. But we are here to worship the one true God Because the message of the gospel that we are holding out to the world as salt and light is that everything that you have has been given to you. Some of you are self-made men and women, and it is amazing to hear your stories. And you're very proud of the fact that you're a self-made man or a woman. But when did you become self-made? After college? Well, who raised you? Who decided when and where you'd be born? Listen, like Weston Long, Matthew and Shawnee were long at work in little Weston Long's life before they adopted him. Jason and Angie Kreider were long at work in little Ellie's life before they adopted her. Friends, Jesus has been long at work in your life before you ever recognized that he was at work in your life wooing you to recognize that you cannot save yourself through your self-saving strategies, but only because of his work for you on the cross. And his glorious resurrection was evidence that that is true. And now he's at the Father's right hand interceding for you and for me. And that should make us not fearful people, but people who run back to Jesus in joyful repentance again and again and again. Do you love mercy and grace? Do you recognize your continual need for the gospel? Thirdly, Christians are those who serve the world in love and not scorn. Of all the worldviews in the world, I would argue that the gospel gives us the ability to be more pessimistic and more optimistic about the world than any other worldview that exists. Because on the one hand, we see that the world has been destroyed utterly by sin. 
Every area of the world has been affected by sin. And yet at the same time, Jesus Christ has come to renew the world. And creation itself cries out as though in childbirth for its redemption. And so we as Christians live between the times, made holy and made new, but also being made new, being made holy, fully affirmed, and yet fully charged to go to be salt and light to the world. What does it mean to serve the world in love and not scorn? Here's what it means. Let's say that we as a church were able to revisit ourselves in 20 years. And let's say that in 20 years, right, let's say that we started out as a church of uh, 150 people. Let's say that in 20 years we come back and Jesus comes back to the church and he says, well, how are you doing? And I say to him, well, Jesus, we're doing fantastic. We have done Bible studies every week for 20 years. We've had people, we have had community groups amongst our 150 every week for 20 years. It's been amazing. We've done worship every single week for 20 years. We even endured a hailstorm. We had worship. Well, how many people do you now have? We have 130 people because 20 of them left to be with you. Now, let me ask you a question. If you had a church of 150 people who in 20 years was down to 130 because of attrition, would Jesus, would Jesus sing over you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant? What would he do, you think? It's an honest question, isn't it? When the town of Owasso is growing exponentially, and we as a church were so concerned about our little holy huddle that we didn't, we didn't grow. In, in Matthew um, chapter 25, there's a parable about the parable of the talents. A talent was 20 years' wage. Let's just say that a talent was equivalent to a million dollars. And a master gives one man five talents, another one two, another one one. The man with five talents goes and he invests those five talents and turns it into five more. The man with two talents goes and he takes those two talents and invests it and turns it into two more. So now we have ten talents and four talents. The man with one talent took that talent and he buried it in the ground. And the master returns and says, friends, what have you done with my talents? And the one says, here are your ten talents. And the one says, well, here are your four talents. We have doubled your money. And the one with one talent says to the master, I knew that you were a hard man. I knew that you were, I feared you. And so I buried your talent in the sand. And what does the master say to that servant? He says, you wicked servant. And he takes that one talent from him and he gives it to the one who had made five more. And what Jesus is trying to say to the Pharisees is the same thing he's trying to say to you and to me. He has given us a church plant to invest into this city. He's given us each other to invest into each other's lives. You have to fight against the preservation effect of the suburbs in Oklahoma and to be willing to extend yourself to others even when it's not convenient. Be able to share your home and hearth. Be able to share your food. Be able to keep kids when ki people need their kids to be watched while they can go on a date and have some peace to themselves for just one evening. It means that you're able 
to confess your sins to each other and to invest emotionally into each other. Not just like check off boxes on how many systematic theologies you've read or how many podcasts you've heard. Those things are important to grow in head, but even more so to grow in your emotional vulnerability together and to extend the good news of the gospel to others in the city of Owasso. That's what the Lord has called us to do. You have to be a Christian who loves mercy and grace. You have to recognize your continual need for repentance. You also have to serve the world in love and not scorn. Don't hate Owasso. Please don't hate Love her. Want her to flourish. Get involved in the community. Find out how you can help Owasso become a great city. That's what the Lord has called us to do. And you can only do this if, look at the last words of the passage in verse 16. If you can call God your Father. This week on This American Life with Ira Glass, there's a story called What's Going On In There. It was a series of stories about people who did not know what was happening, and they assumed that they knew the truth. And there's a story about a young man named Larry who was a second-generation Chinese-American. That means that his parents, who came from the Fujian province of China, moved to America. His father owned a Chinese restaurant, worked this Chinese restaurant 14 hours a day for 20 years. His father only spoke Chinese. His mother on the other hand, spoke to Larry in English. And his parents said, we don't need to worry about teaching you Fujianese or Mandarin, their mother tongues, because listen, you're in our house, you're going to learn it. And so they put Larry in English schools, and they put him with English friends, and Larry grew up all of his life being able to speak English as well as you and I. But guess who he could never speak to? His father. The great experiment that they thought would just inevitably correct itself never was corrected. And they had another son when Larry was eight years old. And this little boy, they decided that they would teach him Fujianese and Mandarin, these two dialects of Chinese that they spoke. And so the father and this younger son had a great relationship. But Larry always felt like he never knew his father because he couldn't speak to him. And he hated his father. They would sit at meals together. And the only thing his father knew how to ask him is, are you healthy? Are you hungry? And as soon as Larry said yes to both of those, the father said not another word. They would sit at meals for years at the dinner table when their mom was gone, and they didn't say a word. They couldn't communicate. And Larry assumed that his father hated his guts. Some of you have been around your father for a long time. Some of you have been around God for a long time. And you think you know what he thinks about you. And you think that he hates you. When Larry was 14 years old, his father got a job, a better job back in China at a construction company that his family owned. So he flew back to China and he sent money to America to support his family. And he wrote his son a letter in Mandarin Chinese that Larry had his aunt translate. And the letter starts off like this. Dear son... The day you were born was the day that I fell in love with you. I am so proud of you. 
Every time we've had dinner together, I wanted to tell you that I think you're so special. And I want nothing more than to spend time with you, but I know it's been awkward because we haven't talked. We can't. I love you. Six full pages of this father, this doting Chinese dad who never shows emotion, spilling out his emotion to his son, Larry. Some of you, when you think about the gospel and Christianity, you think God is a God who hates you because of what you've done, who doesn't ever talk to you. That's a reflection of the fact that you're so awful. But he's coming to you, and he has given you a letter. He has given you a word. And the word is so powerful, it took on flesh. And the word took on flesh, and he died for you as a display, as a love letter of the father to his son to say, son, I love you. Daughter, I love you. I always have. Do you know this? And being a Christian means that you can call God in heaven your father because he loves you. And you can run to him and joyful repentance and be wrapped in his arms and be sung over because he cares for you. You can love to come again and again to the joy of repentance, and you can love mercy and grace, and so extend it to others. The verse that Maggie read in Ephesians chapter 5 says, Paul says, how are you to be light to the world? You are to walk in holiness. Friends, you cannot walk in holiness you cannot begin to walk in holiness if you don't first recognize that all of your sins have been carried away by your Father in heaven who gave his Son for you and for me. Where's the Christian? Can you find him? Where's Waldo? Christians are people who are morally an example and who are morally honest. They are people who run to repentance and joy. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. And they are people who serve the world in love and not scorn. And they are people who can look to their Father in heaven and call them Abba, Father. Can you? Look to your Savior who loves you. Run to him who is the light of the world. And so shall you be. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will... Help us to be salt and light in the city that is so predominantly Christian, we think, that it seems like we just blend in with the crowd. But Father, help us to recognize it is in our brokenness that we become distinct, recognizing our utter need for the gospel of grace and walking in holiness as a result of that. Lord, help us not to give up on our battle against sin. Help us to run to your commands, to obey what you've called us to obey, but to do so as sons who are loved by their Father in heaven. Thank you, Lord, that you delight over us and that you are making us preservatives against the decay of the world and that you are helping us expose the world's darkness by the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our true light the very word of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.